Before we jump into today's episode, let's give a shout out to our sponsor, Jane, a clinic management software and EMR. Whether you're just starting to do your research or you've been contemplating switching your software for a while now, the Jane team understands that the process can feel intimidating. That's why their goal is to provide you with all the onboarding resources you need to make the switch as soon as possible. Jane offers a personalized call to set up your account, a free data import, and a variety of online resources to get you up and running quickly. And if you ever need a helping hand along the way, you'll have access to unlimited phone, email, and chat support included in your Jane subscription. If you're interested in learning more, book a one-on-one demo at jane.app switch. And if you decide to make the switch, don't forget to use the code HEAL1MO, that's HEAL1MO, at sign up to receive a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Associated Body Work and Massage Professionals, ABMP, is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from HealWell. Massage therapists and body workers who choose ABMP membership get much more than comprehensive liability insurance to protect from lawsuits, including our membership-only pocket pathology and five-minute muscles apps. Putting muscle-specific technique videos and helpful information at your fingertips, 5-Minute Muscles has been updated with more than 80 cadaver dissection videos from Dr. Joe Muscolino to provide an even more in-depth understanding. Join ABMP to see for yourself why our members expect more and get more from their association. Interdisciplinary is proud to be sponsored by the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine, AIHM. The AIHM Fellowship is a two-year, 1,000-hour interprofessional online program in integrative health and medicine. It is designed for busy clinicians working full-time and is recognized by the American Board of Integrative Medicine and the Academic Consortium for Integrative Medicine and Health. Much of the learning is self-paced, but there are real-time interactive group workshops and a clinical requirement for graduation. The entire program can be completed virtually if, de- if desired. The program is unique because it brings healthcare providers from all professions together, fostering interprofessional education and collaboration. The curriculum is taught by world-renowned leaders in integrative health and places emphasis on self-care. Our next cohort starts in October. If you apply before September 1st, you may be eligible for a complimentary registration for AIHM's annual conference in San Diego from October 5th through the 8th, 2023. If you have any questions about the program or wish to apply, reach out to fellowship at AIHM.org and mention interdisciplinary. That's fellowship at AIHM.org and mention interdisciplinary. Hello, friends. Welcome to Interdisciplinary, the podcast where we say the quiet things loud, explore difficult ideas in between spaces, ask many questions, and have few, if any, answers. I'm Corey Rivera, Education Coordinator for HealWell, and in today's episode, Cal Cates, HealWell's Executive Director, and I talk with Arika Patnode and Bridget Sumser. On October 14th, we're having our fall symposium, Ending Inequities in End-of-Life Care, which is a virtual event featuring not only education, but actionable insights from people who are doing this work. 
Arika and Bridget will be teaching a pre-conference workshop on October 13th called An Anti-Oppression Framework in End-of-Life Care. The pre-conference is included with the ticket price for the main symposium, so if you're intrigued by this conversation, you should absolutely join us. Otherwise, live classes this fall include Oncology Class in Virginia, September 22nd through 24th, Hospital-Based Massage Therapy in Washington, D.C., October 30th through November 4th, and a brand new SCAR class in Santa Monica, California with Kathy Ryan, November 4th and 5th. So if you're looking for some fun in the sun in November, I highly recommend signing up for that class. You may have also heard we're having a dance party September 21st in Virginia. We would love to see you there, and please bring your boogie shoes. You can always join us in the Healwell community at community.healwell.org from the comfort of your home. Our theme for September is anti-fat bias, and this week's question in the community was, in what ways do you feel your size influences your experience? Don't forget, you can always contact us at podcast at healwell.org. Drop us a line, tell us about you, tell us what you're up to and what conversations you'd like to hear or people you think we should talk to. On a personal note about this episode, if you listen to the whole episode, you will notice that I don't speak until I deliver a solid two minutes of monologue near the end, and I'd like to apologize for the speed at which it is delivered. As we've said before, we prefer it when our guests talk more than we do because you lovely listeners get to hear us every episode. It was far more important to me that Arika and Bridget tell you who they are and what they do than for me to introduce the possibly 900 tangents that popped into my head while they were speaking. I enjoyed listening to this conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it and learn as much as I did. Thank you. So I hope you guys are ready for today's pun. We're not messing around. It's uh, it's an oldie but a baddie. <laughs> so why did the non-binary prospector head west? Because uh. there's gold in them there hills. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. I'll That's see myself out. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks. Wow. I we I tried it in the household and there was some explaining. So I was like, I'm going to risk it. I mean, what, what's the worst that can happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are so excited to have you both with us today, our guests. And the way we do it here is we just let you introduce yourself because you can tell us what... Um, what you want us to know about you and you can always say your name correctly. There are a lot of reasons why it benefits all of us. So um, I'll let you guys, uh, you folks arm wrestle about who wants to be the first to introduce yourself, but um, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Larica, you want to yeah, go? Thank you so much. I was going to say, why don't you go first, Bridget? We'll, we'll get, we'll uh, let the white lady go first this time. <laughs> oh, <thank you>. uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I'm Bridget Semser. I am a clinical social worker, amongst other things. Um, the majority of my clinical practice has been in palliative care with adults um, across an, a number of settings. Um, but a lot of my work these days is housed at UCSF here in San Francisco and with um, Metal Health, which is a startup trying to figure out how to help people living with illness who who can't get what they need out of the healthcare system in terms of support. Um and you know importantly here as a as a collaborator and co-inspirer with Arica around anti-racism work and anti-oppression work um in and around for healthcare workers and healthcare settings. Um and just super happy to be here. 
Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. It's funny because this is the way that Bridget and I are together. And I think it's part of what makes us work so, so well together. So I'm Erica Moore Patnode and um, I'm a black cisgender indigenous woman and um, social justice has been in my, the fabric of who I am from the day that I came out of the womb, um, born at home on a mountaintop essentially. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm the daughter of a Ashkenazi Jewish woman and a black indigenous man. And they met during the civil rights movement and anti-oppression work, anti-racism work um, is, like I said, it's, the, it's so much of the fabric of who I am. And um, somebody asked me not too long ago to think about like what my New York Times obituary would be. And not that I'll ever be in the New York Times, New York Times with an obituary, at least not that I imagine that I will be. That's not like my goal <laughs> in life. Right. Fair. Fair. My legacy is it. Is it I mean, be, I'm not um, saying I don't want to be in the New York Times. I'm just saying like, I'm. it's not my. No, no, no. Goal. It's, maybe it's, not for not, the obituary. Eh? Maybe earlier. Yeah. 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 Maybe earlier. But like when I think about what my le what my legacy is, it's really um, around decolonizing healthcare um, for marginalized folks with marginalized historically, currently all around town identities, right? Um, and you know, Bridget, you talk about us being co-conspirators, and it's like we we really are. And I think that. Um, you know, as a, as a Black woman with multiple intersecting identities, having a, a white woman who I can trust in the way that I do with Bridget and talking about and joking about and just really, truly being myself with um, in this work is just so, so important. And the funny thing is, is that Bridget and I have never actually met in 3D, right? Mm -hmm. isn't, that, isn't that bonkers? That is bonkers. Um, yeah, we've never met in 3D. And Bridget, I just, just for kicks and giggles, please describe yourself. And then well, I'll describe okay. myself. Hi, oh. Height wise, height wise, oh. height wise. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm 6'1. And I'm not. <laughs> we do have, we do sort of exist in these like opposite um, bodies in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, in multiple ways. Yeah, yeah, in multiple ways, right? Um, oh, yeah. I really appreciate. I'm just like sitting here thinking about appreciating the call to have the white lady go first and recognizing, like, oh, we've introduced ourselves together so many times, um, and <clears throat> I just feel super cognizant right now of the reality that, like. If I had gone after you, what I would have said would have been different um, because I would have been like following your lead around the descriptors right. I would have used to describe yourself, myself, not yourself, myself, right. uh, uh, which like in another setting, in another moment, had I not just been running in from drop off and had my dog like staring at me, whining at me currently, maybe I would have said right now, but ultimately I have the choice, right? Like just such that reminder that like, I have the choice to use the descriptors or not. If I had gone after you, I'm like, you know, politically correctly savvy enough to, to mimic that. Right. And when you called out the white lady to go first, 
she didn't always necessarily do that I don't always necessarily do that it's just a like humbling real reminder we'll be right back do you want to change the world so do we Join HealWell this September in Arlington, Virginia, when we host the event to remember. There will be classes and conversations. There will be old friends and new ones. And yes, there will be dancing. Come to HealWell Homecoming and let's keep this ball rolling. Well, and I think it's part of the intentionality, right? Like... Because our stories can change to mimic our our who we're with or what they say and what our environment is and right and all of those sort of things. And you know, um Bridget and I talk so much, we spend so much time talking about anti-oppression specifically in social work, because the fact that I'm a clinical social worker for me is a, is a small part of my identity in this work. And, um, but we spend a lot of time together teaching, I guess, social workers, right? How, how to, um, how to center anti-oppression, anti-racism work in social work practice, because social work is, it's a, a field of a lot of really nice white ladies, Right. A lot of really nice, well-meaning white ladies who may not have an awareness of how the field started and then how that how that then impacts who they're caring for. Right. What we learn, the theories that we learned, the Jane Addams, what, you know, what, how great her and all of her buddies were. Yet (laughs) nobody ever. Right. Yet nobody ever talks about that, how, how much she, you know, I always think about Ida B. Wells. Like who, who in, when you look at history books, people talk about, you know, her and Jane Addams were good friends. I'm like, what the hell did being a good friend in, you know, 19 whatever with a white lady mean? Yeah. Right. For yeah. Ida, for Ida B. Wells and, and how much of the work of Ida B. Wells then became Jane Addams work to carry forward, right? Cause black and brown and other marginalized, marginalized folks, we've been doing social work for a millennia or or longer, right? Because we did we haven't had a choice. Well, we those are those skills you learned, right? Under oppression. I God, mean, oh my God. That's what that's what Ron DeSantis told us. <laughs> yeah, right. You no, know, right, this is right. well, when it was good for us, right? Yeah, I yeah, mean, obviously, you guys for really other parts of life. You made some lemonade out of that business, right? I, you yeah. know, I think it's interesting because you know, we were joking, not joking before we came on about how you and Bridget had been saying, like, let's just like get on here and almost like, like have fun, which, you know, we try to do on this podcast, even though we tend to take on topics that typically people don't find fun. Um, But I think even the, the playfulness of saying like the white lady can go first and sort of what's under that. And the, I feel like there are some parallels with palliative care. Like when we're talking to, we have so many massage therapists who come to oncology massage directly and and intimately wounded because they themselves have cancer or they have a family member who they lost to cancer. And so they, they start to tell their story in class and they laugh in this way that isn't laughing. Right. And that the class laughs because everybody's like, oh, thank God, we don't have to feel the feels. Right. And then as instructors, 
we just do that like space holding thing that is like when everyone stops laughing, we can make space for what that laugh was about. And and I feel like there's a real there's an art to like spotting the how do we release this valve, but not let it just close again. Like, whoo, glad we missed the chance to feel the nuance. And how do you find yourselves? Do you find yourselves introducing um, humor into this really heavy topic that people would rather run the other way from, even when they've signed up for a course, right? Like they get to the course and they go, oh, I didn't know this was going to be about me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I'm feeling the things and I would rather be somewhere else right now. Mm. Which is which is such a privileged place to be, right? Mm. Like it's yep. such a privileged place to be. Mm-hmm. And Bridget does this. So when we when we co-teach together, Bridget does this really nice like way of calling out, calling in, naming, holding people accountable, whatever we want to call it, right? Like there's so many, the language has been so co-opted by, you know, so many nice white ladies in particular um, of, of asking people and Bridget, like, I think it would be great for you to even talk about like how you do that. And I'm thinking about like the, um, when we did the, the training with the neighborhood houses mm-hmm. and, you know, and we start getting all these questions and sometimes questions are come across as like, not actually a question, but more like, I don't actually believe this and I need you to prove this to me and how you handle that. Cause you do it so like artfully and sometimes like it's pretty funny for me anyway. Yeah, totally. That's <laughs> such a, I mean, you're always like so full of reflections that like leave me um, just a little breathless for a sec. But uh, I guess part of what I think about it and it's funny cause it's like, it's this work, it's end of life work. It's like, how do we exist in this space that is depersonalized and yet so intimate? And it's like sort of in that space of like, it's not about me. It's deeply about me that like, I think the awareness that comes from that place allows some softness, allows some flexibility to, you know, be real and honest and authentic about uh, where we misstep. And I think, I don't know, when I think about like where I'm coming from, albeit like largely unconsciously, I think in, in those sort of teaching situations or just like in any sort of relational situation where there's a moment to be like, wait, I don't know what, what do you ask actually asking or like what's actually under here? Like some deep humility and also deep knowing that like, it could easily be me who just said the same thing. Yeah. Like I'm in these conversations all the time and I did not introduce anything about my social location when we started this morning. Right. <laughs> like, like, hello, this, just, yeah. this is all of us all of the time. We are so steeped in it that you can, do lots of work, important, personal, intimate, relational work. And still we are like products of what we're being showered with all of the time. And I really like just trying to stay in that place. So like when I ask someone like, 
what do you mean? Like, I don't, can we pause and actually get to like, what's under here? I'm saying it to myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I think one of the things that we both Arka and I hold like so close is like, no, this is not a place for shame. We're not, we are not, we are not motivating or trying to energize or try and like North star from shame because it's distracting and it's, uh, it's not a real motivator for people. It's like, we are all in this. We all receive benefit from having this conversations. It's liber it's liberatory for all of us. It's personal and intimate and totally not about us equally at the same time, somehow. Yeah. What do you do about, because I, I think one of the many, um, protection strategies that we white people use is to sort of pretend that the shame is so great we couldn't possibly move forward you know to really give in to that sense of overwhelm that you can feel when you even just touch the possibility of the amount of harm you've done and it's you know there is that sense of like well you know guess this is it like I'm just gonna wallow and you're like yeah that's not why we're here like what what do you do or how do you I mean how how does it impact you first like when you see a participant who's like nope I'm just gonna stay in this place of like no thanks I'm gonna feel bad about myself can I start off on this one Bridget even though I'm not a white lady um I think you know one of the things that Bridget and I are very intentional about in our trainings is talking about accountable space Mm -hmm. right so we don't believe in it it's not that we don't believe in it's not in this work the idea of a safe space and the idea of a quote-unquote brave space, which yep. always makes me want to puke, uh-huh. um, right? Like, it's it's really about accountability. So as Bridget just said, like, we all have been swimming in this giant cesspool of white supremacy for, you know, four or five plus hundred years, right? Yep. From the time that if we're from the, if we're from this country, from the time that it was colonized from the time that the first Puritan stepped upon these shores, right, and claimed that this land was theirs without even acknowledging the beautiful and intentional spaces that had already been created on on this land, right? And so we talk about accountable space in a way of like, and Elise Ahankora um, ha- has written about this. She has this amazing article in the Medium. I'm actually looking at it right now because I wanted to pull it up specifically for this that talks about accountable spaces that we have adapted for the for the teaching that we do together. So we're we're asking people not to show up and expect safety, whatever that is, because safety means something different for each of us, right? I mean, obviously there are certain things that are completely off limit, li- off limit, right? Races homophobic, like any, you know, transphobic, any sort of, um, any sort of Ron DeSantis sort of, uh, right. (laughs) Thinking about things is, is is that because there's no accountability in that there's like, you know, like, but, um, but it's what we're asking for is in accountability is allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. Right. And to, not sit in this and I talk about this all the time the shame spiral right to not sit in the shame spiral it's like oh crap well I you know I did this and and now this means this and I must be a bad person and this and this and this and this and then it's like you're spiraling down the drain 
Um, but to interrupt that shame spiral and say like, okay, how can I be accountable? And one of the ways that you can be accountable is that you apologize and you say, I'm learning and I'm growing and I hope to do this better. And thank you for holding me accountable. Right. So I guess I, I've never said this out loud. So let's see how this lands. It's just awesome. Now I I love it. I feel like that like oh I remember reading like well this that actually this isn't going to work with this example anyways I remember reading Annie Lamont one of Annie Lamont's book and she was like I can't get out of bed it's so Uh I can't get out of bed and I I love Annie Lamont that she has taught me so many things but I remember reading the book being like are you for real like you can't get out of bed from your house in Marin like right like what like how is that available to you how are we talking about interracial relationships and yet that is available to you that doesn't translate to me and I guess one of the things that the thing that I'm sort of thinking is like if the guilt or the shame is so immobilizing do you have any people of color in your life closely whose world you actually know about intimately. And I I think that's another thing that we, you know, in our, in our kind of partnership together, so much of what we talk about and want to model and want to talk about with the folks that come to things with us is that like, this is relational. It's not theoretically relational. It's grounded in your love and care and empathetic connection to other human beings. And from there, you go on and do work in mostly white spaces or mostly brown spaces or whatever. The the work can look however it needs to look. But like, for me, the feeling of like overwhelm with this system has always been sobered instantly by my understanding of how people I love actually live in the world every day. And there is no time for my pity party. Yeah. Like, yeah, there, because it relates to real lives, not names on the news, not that, not stuff that we just for better or for worse, our psyches can really protect us from. And in my own life, I, that my psyche works there around environmental stuff. I'm a parent of young children and I basically cannot touch in my body anything about climate change right now because I feel so out of control um, when thinking about it. So I can, I can relate. It's something that I can keep here, but when we're talking about race, if we can keep it here, do you have any folks of color close to your body? You know, and if not, you know, being a white person, person in the business of like finding friends of color so that you have friends of color is not a great look. No, no. <laughs> I was actually just I going think, to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like, what are the possibilities for like, just being aware of like, wow, I exist in like basically only white spaces. That's who I cultivate relationships with. I, maybe want that to be different, but how do I do that authentically? And I don't have answers for people on that, but those are the questions that maybe start to get you into different, you know, a different world. 
Yeah. Kayla, I was just thinking as, as, as Bridget was talking, I was thinking about you talking about like the, the oncology massage, massage therapists, right. And some of them who hold trauma in their own bodies, whether because they also had cancer or because of who their, their perceived identities are in the world. Cause right. Let's, we do a lot of, we do a lot of categorization of people by, based on what they look like, right? Yeah. So we like to we like to put people in boxes, and then that becomes the truth in our head. And I'm thinking about like just imagining one of these, you know, a, a massage therapist walking into a room with somebody who has a vastly different identity than them, it, maybe even a perceived identity, different yeah. identity to them, right? And how, and how as a practitioner or a clinician or whatever we want to call call what we what the clinical work that we do um right what does it mean to show up again with that humility of this human to human this intimacy because it is so intimacy healthcare is so flippant intimacy intimate and yet it's gotten so corporatized right and it's also true I also have to say this Bridget you know I always go off on this tangent of DEI or EDI or IDEA or JEDI or whatever the fuck it's called right when really what we're talking about is if we boil it down to this human relationship it doesn't need to be corporatized right and and probably one of my biggest pet peeves in our society post George Floyd is like it's it's bittersweet because it's like let's corporatize all of this, right? And so then we have check marks, and then we can say, okay, well we've done this, we've done this, we've done this. So now, so now we've created a, a diverse, equitable, inclusive space, right? And yet, for the people who hold marginalized identities who are walking around in this space, we might be like, this doesn't feel different, right? Like th- we're using the language differently, right? We're saying the words. We all know the buzzwords now. A lot of flags and stickers. Yeah. There's a lot (laughs) of flags and stickers, right? It's like, great. I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're an ally, but, but in Bridget and I talk about this too, right? But if you're a self-named ally, are you really an ally? Yeah. Right. Like, no, you're not. You might know all of the language and that's the corporatization of it, right? It's the corporatization of healthcare. It's the corporatization of equity and inclusion work it's the right which equity and inclusion work should be and belonging should just be infused into the fabric of everything that we do but what we hear is people say well I wasn't trained in that I don't know how to do that Mm -hmm. but if we come back to this relational piece so I take it back to the massage therapist who's walking into the room right of a patient or a client or another human being right? Who's going to really, who, who is, who may very well benefit from human touch in this way, right? Like it's well, that, would it, you, it would boils you, down to that intimacy. Definitely. Definitely. Which is another thing we struggle with. I mean, I think in some ways I would say we're actually trained against it if there's any training, right? And so it doesn't, it's not our default to connect without labels and stories and like culture rewards us for being able to categorize each other. Absolutely. And, you know, shape shift and, and those sorts of things. But I think about like, I'm relatively new to, um, to this work in terms of like facilitating awareness with other people. And, but in some ways not because I feel like I have been helping people acknowledge their mortality and really go deep into that for 15 or so years now. And 
there's a lot of overlap because to really do this work, you are dying to yourself. If you really want to do it, it's like, you have to let go of your, I'm one of the good ones. You have to let go of your, and I feel like Mm -hmm. I imagine there's some real um, parody in terms of what you see with social workers as, I mean, because there is a, there's a legacy of saviorism in social work for sure. Right. That is, that endures. And I, I feel like massage therapists have this real sense of like, I just love people. I just love bodies. You know, basically I don't see color and, and that to invite them to consider the ways that their office space and the Mm -hmm. verbiage they use on their website. And, you know, they're so loving and they're a healer. And like, there's a whole litany of things that massage therapists are deeply attached to in terms of their personal identity. Mm. And when we, when we look at the massage profession and we see that it is 90% white and lots of women and like, they're all these, and then we have this resistance to intimacy. So like when you talk about intimacy and the role of that massage therapy as a profession is currently shouting as loudly as it can. This is not intimate because intimate mm. equals sex and sex equals mm. sex work. And then, oh my gosh. Right. And so mm. I, I find that one of my struggles, particularly when we encounter people who really are completely new to this. And I would say, I would just remove the word completely when I think about myself in this process, Mm. where do you start? Because it really is, there's so many walls inside us because we, we are, we are identity projects, each of us without even realizing it. And when you come into this space, you think that like, you're going to get a list of like shit you should stop doing. Mm. Right. But like words, you tell me all the words I shouldn't say. Totally. (laughs) And those are available. Right. Yes. I know. Those guides like, are available. <laughs> Those yeah. guides are there. And like, you know, a lot of the DEI modules are they're not not that. Right. Right. And then of- the, and you get into that like circular firing squad, right? Where you're like, oh, we don't say that word anymore. And you know, now I'm activated because this person used this word that like is so six months ago. And and it's like, man, we'll do anything to distract ourselves from the actual oh, totally. word. <laughs> Totally. And the reality is with with language is that language changes, right? And language will has power and white supremacy has have has used language, right, to co-opt, to colonize, to right, and all all of the all of the other bad things that that it has done. So I think like I I was thinking about um Dr. Autumn Blackdeer, she's an indigenous scholar who's at the University of, of um Colorado and she does amazing amazing work on decolonizing social work she's a social work scholar and she does just incredible work on and sometimes like I look at her you know and and she and I are friends and like sometimes I look at her Instagram and I'm like oh or her social media and I was like oh wow she really named the she really named whatever it whatever it is and I feel uncomfortable, then it's like, why the hell do I be uncomfortable? Because she's speaking the truth, right? She's an indigenous woman, right? Who is speaking the truth about oppression and about colonization and about whiteness and about like, she's one of the, she's one of the biggest critics that I know of, of DEI, EDI, idea, Jedi. Again, I can't just, right. I can't, Right, exactly. I can't just say one, right? Because, and and she talks about how it then gives white people permission to essentially kind of check out because they've done the check boxes and they don't have to remain engaged. 
right? Yeah. It, but like, I don't have a choice mm-hmm. to not remain engaged. Mm-hmm. Do you, you know? feel, I mean, I feel like so much of this work and, and I guess my question is specifically about decolonizing healthcare, like, just feels heavy. <laughs> just even say it right. <laughs> like, oh, I mean, God. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a small job. No, I mean, we're going to pull <laughs> a hand or two. Yeah. So, but I feel like so much of, of this is saying what's true, is calling bullshit on stuff enough times that we like break the spell almost. And I, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a tiring thing to keep it's almost like, you know, when you in some in some therapy modules, you sort of like it's about naming the distortion. Right. And being mm-hmm. like, that's actually like, where am I hearing that story from? OK, that's not accurate. Let me check it. Oh, wow. OK, right. Like when I remove this mirror that I've been taught to carry, this looks a lot different. And, uh, you know, I feel like so much of the burnout and the poor health outcomes and the things that are plaguing our, quote, system of healthcare are the result of us collectively buying the lies over and over. And Mm -hmm. like, how do you, how do you, how do you two attempt to unpack that with, I mean, if your focus is social workers, okay. I feel like, man, if there's a solidarity of like smoothing it over, that's what social workers do, right? (laughs) I guess, I mean, just, I'm thinking about what you said um, saying what's true. And I think I, I think about it a little bit differently, which is I'm very oriented to thinking about why do we think that is true? Mm-hmm. Because truth, I don't know about truth. I yeah. don't, I don't, Amen. I, I don't capital T truth search of truth. I don't, Who's yeah, truth? It's, above my, it's above my pay grade. Yep. I don't think as a person that speaks truth. Like I just am a person who is like, but why? Yeah. Why that way? Why Uh does professional mean my clothes have to look like this or your clothes have to look like that? Or we have to speak in this way. Who decided that? Yeah. And and I think that, you know, back to your question of like, where do we start is like, none of us created any of this. No. So when you ask the question, I'm not saying, why do you do this? I'm saying, why do we do this? Yeah. And we keep that come that. from who does it center? Who does it validate? What does it represent? Who does it represent? It's most likely none of us in this room, even the cis pet white men. Right. 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 Like it's, it, it, and, and I, uh, you know, that's how I kind of, I think how we like stay away from the shame, stay away from the guilt, not stay away from it, like avoid it, but just say like, look, this is a we project and it's a we Mm -hmm. project from very different experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's just start to question together why we think that is true. And there's, there's a lot of energy in that because then what's possible as opposed to that's not right don't uh-huh. do it that way. Let's do it this way. Because honestly, like we're so steeped in all this. We don't know how to do it. We don't know the better way. Right. We just know this way sucks. If we really look at it. <laughs> right. Right. Totally. Right. And, and I, uh, oh, yeah. the other thing I was just going to say is that, you know, our, our focus isn't just on social workers. Our focus is on really on healthcare workers. Mm, right. Okay. Because, yeah. um, it just so happens that we're social workers. So we get, we get asked to do, do a yeah. lot of the teaching to other social workers. <laughs> right. Um, but like even thinking about, you know, the whole, 
kind of saviorism that comes with being a healthcare worker, right? But yeah. but it's also what we what because we're both we're healthcare workers. All of us are healthcare workers too, right? Like it's the you know, it's just thinking about like after the pandemic, all the banging of the pots and pans and our healthcare workers are heroes. And then how that how that um, tide turned and became like, you know, healthcare workers essentially. Yeah. Are, are demons because they want us to get vaccinated or right. most of them want us to get vaccinated. There's some who don't. Right. But yeah. like but like even thinking about um, the the privilege that comes to that and, and you talk to you can talk to healthcare workers and be like, well, how is it that you wanted to get, why is it that you wanted to get into this work? Because I wanted to help people. Right. And, yeah. and like, when you boil it down to that, like, that's again, talking about a human connection and intimacy, not the, not the, not the sex worker kind, right. right. Which is also very valid by the Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yes. Um, right. But, but it, it, being a healthcare worker is also being engaging in intimate work. And, and I think that, as healthcare workers, we've gotten so, you know, I think about, sorry, I'm all over the place right now, but I think about like how, how medicine used to be practiced, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to use my, my, my own example of, I was born at a home, born at home on a 308 acre farm, and I was delivered by a naturopath who does house calls, who did house calls. He's now dead. Maybe he's doing house calls somewhere else. Right. Right. But, and, and, and Dr. Smith came to our home and delivered me in, in, uh, and, and taught, like literally taught my father how to deliver babies so that my br younger brother and my younger sister were delivered at home by my father. And I was present for both, right? That's what healthcare used to be, right? Mm -hmm. We used to go into people's homes, right? And, and, you know, there is this movement of, of especially around birth, especially for black women, right, who have this incredibly high um, mortality, maternal fe fetal mortality rate um, of returning to the home. But then now our system has so changed that like that's frowned upon. Mm -hmm. Right. So if uh, if a baby is admitted to a NICU and they were born at home, there's all kinds of judgment around that. Well, if they didn't have a midwife, if they wouldn't have, if they would have right. this, if they would have that, right? Like that, but that, it, mm -hmm. there's pros and cons to, to, to this, right? And, and, and as healthcare workers, we hold that bias, those isms, the judgment, the, right? And so what would happen if we suspended that and, and actually gave grace and compassion to the, to the person who gave birth at home and something went wrong because guess what shit goes wrong in the hospital too oh yeah yeah i almost died in giving birth in a hospital <laughs> yeah. right yeah, the like, hospital's not a safe place to be for a lot of reasons <laughs> right exactly yeah. so it's like when if we think of so if we like with that example and we think and we take apart the language and the colonization of even the language right before anyone delivered a baby a person birthed that baby. Yeah. And the other person caught the baby. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. like as soon as we professionalize these roles, we, we sucked up the autonomy of the people, the expertise of the person actually living the thing. Yep. And, and we make it a role. Yeah. And, right. and, that's, and yet that's just a false. Yeah. 
But yeah, and yet, Bridget, right, like when we think about, you know, when my ancestors were in the fields being forced to give birth in a field and then go back to work after a certain period of time, right? Like, nobody was worried about, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm sure the enslavers were worried about because this is going to be a loss of income for them if this baby died or this mother or, or this mother died, right? right? But it's like, people have giving, been giving birth in all kinds of circumstances and continue to around the world. And yet we here in this country believe that we have it right, but we have one of the highest mortality rates. Yeah. Right? Yeah, definitely. For a quote developed country, we have some of the worst outcomes uh, kind of right. across the board medically. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But in so childbirth, like when you look at the rates for childbirth, right in the, in our, in this, yeah. Yeah. We're great at denying things, right? We're great at seeing seeing what's of not seeing what's right in front of us. Yes. So what how do you because I feel like one of the things that um that we do is we say read this book and we're going to talk about it, right? And we're going to like mush around our intellectual peas on the plate and we're going to be like look at all the words I know and look at all the like you know, historical atrocities that I am now like intimately acquainted with. And now I'm going to go and do my usual white privilege shtick, right? Because like my brain is full of stuff about how terrible it is, but I haven't been invited to feel in my body mm -hmm. how I suffer by participating in oppression, how I am oppressed by, oppressed by these systems, how if I'm a healthcare worker, what I see in front of me, let's like you said, Bridget, let's not call it the truth. But what I see in front of me is not supportive of life and thriving for patients, for me. And how do I do do you in your trainings and in your, you know, when you have an opportunity to invite people into the space, how do you move them out of their brains? Because we love to be in our brains because that's like it's safe and neat and clean in there. <laughs> We're really good at at silence. Oh, isn't silence really good at silence? And we'll even joke about it, but we'll be like, we're both palliative care clinicians. We can sit here in silence all day. Ooh, and ooh, it ooh. makes people, and we invite people to get out of their heads, right? Yeah. So it's like, that's what, that's what, what we're going to do. So we can just sit here, you know, and the cadence of, uh, of, of this work is also slow. Like people want something fast. Right. I want it to be fast. I want it to be done. I want to be able to say that I'm culturally competent or culturally yeah. aware or cult or however, whatever the language is that folks want to use. Right. To say that they're a good person. I am a good person because of this. Yes. Right? But it's slow and it's lifelong. And so, you know, in, in a two hour training, I mean, I some it depends on the group. Right. Sometimes right. it's really quiet for oh, quite a while. Yeah. I think you know I think we try and like invite quite explicitly in the idea of accountable space that like part of how you um act accountable is by slowing down paying attention to your own body before you say something asking like where is this coming from why do I have anxiety in my body do I have some tightness um so the invitation is there. And then I think in our facilitation style, we keep it slow and ask those questions or bring like, oh, I'm just realizing in myself, I'm feeling X, Y, and Z. So using that modeling, um, you know, there was, there was a study some years ago that was like, 
if your psychotherapist has a mindfulness practice, your outcomes as their patient or client are just likely to be better. Like almost like osmosis. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, You don't have to adopt a practice, but if your therapist has a mindfulness practice, you're likely to have a better outcome. Come whatever asterisk outcome. Yeah. But I think that that's part of what we're doing is is so much modeling modeling yeah. our relationship, modeling in the way that we tend to ourselves, that we share what's happening internally that people can't see so that they get this imprint for a way to be in the space. And a lot of that is nonverbal, but mm-hmm. I think that's a big component of the teaching facilitation mentoring yeah. being with. You're like stopping the pinball. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's the thing people start to feel and then they want to talk and then somebody else says, oh, I'm feeling I'd rather talk. And then, yeah, if you can hold it in a non-judgmental way, I mean, I feel like you can be, you know, you can be silent and judgmental <laughs> at the same time. Right. But yeah, when you hold the, the space of like, yeah, like everything about you is saying, I can feel how hard this is for all of us and mm-hmm. just hang out and slow down and that's yeah. where the feeling happens. I mean, that's why we move fast usually so that we don't have to feel. Right. right. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I'm somebody who's, I can be really, personally, I can be really uncomfortable with slowing things down. And like, that can be, you know, and it's funny because it's like, you know, in my professional life, I'm, like, I'm pretty skilled at it. But in my personal life, there are times that I'm just like, Mm, wow maybe if I would have just paused there so I (laughs) I always like in anti-oppression work I'm always talking about let's let's start with the pause what is the pause why is the pause you know what is the pause interrupting the pause might be interrupting my brain saying something stupid Uh right or my the pause may be my brain or not my brain my soul interrupting you know me causing harm Uh And and I'm not saying intentionally, right? Because people are like, well, I'm not intentionally doing this. Well, I know I'm not, I'm also not intentionally doing this. If that mattered, it would be great. Right? Oh, (laughs) if that mattered, it would be great. I don't intentionally cause harm, but guess what? I still do. Yes. Yeah. And that can be, that can be really difficult to acknowledge right because we also the other another aspect of white supremacy is perfection right we need to be perfect at all things at all times yeah and if we make a mistake right and i think that's why people will say like i haven't been trained in equity work and i'm like okay yeah neither have i and by the way those training programs that's not really training in equity work either right right that's training in certain modalities yeah right um that then can allow the corporatization of, of what yeah. it is that we're talking about. Yeah. So, um, but that can be really difficult, right? To say, to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of impossible to become expert and we hate that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After you spend a certain number of hours doing a thing and feeling this level of discomfort, you should be able to never have to do that again. <laughs> ever ever but look at look at how like in an icu mock codes are run right yeah over and over and over and over again because if it you know i mean 
kind of an adage to say, like, if you don't use it, you lose it. And, th and that's, that's true in anti-oppression work too, right? You have to use it or you're going to lose it. So like a training once a year isn't really going to do much. But if, you're if there's intentionality on a day-to-day -day basis, right? And I think that, that there are there are, are clinicians in healthcare who are really understanding this, right? They're really understanding the, the parallel to, okay, I'm an ICU doctor and I have to run mock codes and I have to participate in mock codes. And right, there's there's such a thing as, as it's not even a mock, but it's like there should be codes for, for anti-oppression work as well, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not enough to just know the language. Because if I hear somebody who just speaks the language all the time and I'm like, well, what's the action behind the language? Like, yeah. it doesn't really mean anything. Great. You, great. You have white privilege. Right. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Congratulations. Yeah. Well, right. Like where you get into the, you know, the softer, like in, in, well, it's not necessarily always soft, but the intuitive space of like feeling someone's authenticity. Mm -hmm. right? Someone can have a little bit of knowledge and a lot of authenticity or a lot of knowledge and a little bit of authenticity. And people know that yeah. they might not be able to identify that that's what they're feeling, but they know it. Yeah. That's, you know, you, you, the train, you can't train authenticity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can facilitate experiences that help people connect to deeper, um, less familiar places of themselves, which is then an invitation to get to know that, which then maybe leads itself to authenticity. I mean, we could probably spend a lifetime just spending on like a lifetime talking about like, how do you, what is authenticity? How do you get yeah. there? How do you tease it out? Yeah. But like, that's a huge component of how to be in this space, especially as a person of privilege. Yeah. Right. It's, 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 being in yourself, maybe being in your body, if that's a safe place to be and coming from there that people can really feel. And then the, the perfect language, the right, that's not really what matters. Like, cause people feel that you're solid in that place. You can hear like, Oh, that's, that doesn't really work for me that you're talking about it this way. Yeah. yeah. I think the only thing we haven't talked about, um, is grief. Mm. right like when we feel the shame mm -hmm. we're grieving for a world that was that is no longer mm -hmm. because our eyes have been open to something like the assumptive reality of how the world works like crashes and crashes and crashes and crashes again yeah you start to you know refine this lens this way of seeing and being in the world and there's grief there and that's complicated mm -hmm. because like nobody wants to say like I'm grieving the world where I was totally comfortable because I was incubated in my privilege but you are we are yeah mm -hmm. well, I, for privileged people yes no I think that's true and I wonder I I think it's more on a uh I don't even know if subconscious is the word, but a deeper level that I think the other piece of it is like when, and again, I feel like this relates to when we're doing like mortality awareness type work that when you, when you start to spot those spots, you are aware that you've abandoned yourself. And there's like a grief in knowing that like, mm. 
our intuitive sense, it, I th I think, is toward community. But it's so trained out of us so early that when we notice that the ways we've been behaving are antithetical to community, we are sad because, oh, now my eyes are open and shit, I can't not see this. But also mm. like, whoa, like what I know is in here is gorgeous. And I've like totally sold it up the river <laughs> for mm. these external rewards that culture has told me are the way to get ahead or to have less friction. Mm. And yeah. And I, I don't know that it's a conscious thing that many of us do where we go, oh, I abandoned myself. But I do. I feel like it's like so it's the lightness that people feel when they finally do their wills and estates and they go, shit, I didn't even know I was worried about that. But Ooh. now that I've done it, I feel so much better. <laughs> and I feel like yeah. it's a similar thing that you don't know that you've been moving away from yourself every time you harm another person or yourself. And yeah. at that is hard. Yeah. It's a grief. Okay. Sorry, but okay. I was like, grief is grief is interesting to think about with this because, like, because yes, there absolutely is grief. There's grief. There's trauma. There's right some and and as you were talking, as both of you were talking, I was thinking about my the young my young self, right? The twenty year old me who would wear the shirt that said "Love See No Color," which like I and and the almost fifty three year old me who looks back at that 20 year old me. And sometimes I do look back with like silent judgment of like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. But then I focus on, and I, I focus on the growth that has happened over the last 33 years, like within me, because, because all of us are capable of gro growth. Mm -hmm. um, well, most of us, <laughs> there's probably some exceptions in my head, but you know what I mean? And just like, and there are times that I, there are days that I grieve Grief is just sewn in, again, sewn into me on a daily basis because I look back sometimes at that 20-year-old me with envy of mm -hmm. like, I wish that I still believed this on such a simple level, right? Mm -hmm. I wish that if I'm watching a show and they say something misogynistic that I didn't immediately in my brain go and then have to say to my kids, well, you know, there's an example of, you know, or misogynaire or whatever. It's like misogynoir. Um, and I just like, I grieve at times that ability to, to, to not, because like, it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. But the other piece of it is, is that we have to be, we have to get comfortable with that discomfort. We have to, in order to do this work, we have to get comfortable with it. And Lovey um, Ajayi Jones does a great TED Talk. And I always like to say, like, I was saying get comfortable with being uncomfortable before she did the TED Talk on getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. <laughs> so I just want to put that out there. Lovey, we I should have know, an off. Know. I bet there are a bunch seriously. of people put in an application for that. Totally. Seriously. Seriously. But but I think, you know, that's that's the piece. It's like, if you really want to do this work, you have to be willing to sit in that discomfort. And yes, there's going to be grief that comes with that. Like, just know that. But as humans, we are so good at avoiding anything that's going to cause grief, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and can we can we grieve the time we've wasted? Like as much as the discomfort that we now have to live with on a daily basis. Like I, I think, I, I feel like I go back and forth because to some degree, like as a person who, you know, one of the many deaths for me was like, oh, like, well, I'm not a straight person. I'm a trans person. I'm a, these are things that like, oh, so what parts of me have to die for this to come fully to life? And like, 
having moved through some of those sort of rings of fire, I would never, ever want to go back to those other places. But, um, but the sadness about like, okay, well, this is the time I have left and I'm going to keep waking up and keep like, I got through all those rings of fire and like still good. Right. Like, like, and so what's ahead and what can you, and like, can we, this is where I feel like community is so important to be able to say to each other. Yeah, boy, I was a real shithead. And like, or I really was asleep to these beautiful parts of myself or to the people around me. And that you can say together, man, like, yeah, let's not waste any more time. And like, that's the inspiration piece without like, at the risk of bright siding it, I feel like we can also grieve the grief can be an inspirational force if we sort of shift it like that. Right, right. And that's, and again, I come back to, I know we talked about this earlier, right? The function of white supremacy right is if 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 we live in an individualistic society and we're all individualistic and we move away from each other and we don't create our communities and we don't do this and we don't do that we're it's easier to to control us hmm. Corey, i want to know what you're thinking up there in the corner <laughs> Nobody puts Corey in a corner. Right. She's the inscrutable <laughs> gargoyle. Um, it's only a gargoyle if water comes out of your mouth. I just want to note that. Um, <laughs> hey. Uh, Learn something every day, right? <laughs> so the reason I haven't been talking um, has a lot to do with... Um, the fabulous class that we're going to have in October um, to be in conjunction with our symposium, um, which you will have heard about on my lovely introduction. So we don't need to go into that right now, but um, I've gotten really into messaging lately and um, time that it takes to message. So generally when we have these conversations, often my thoughts go in like 97 different directions and that's only so helpful depending on what we're doing at the time. So that's why I've been very quiet. So the big things that came up for me were, um, I am a extremely intellectual person in sometimes a detrimental manner. Um, I don't feel it as detrimental, but I understand that like how that makes me miss things, but it's also the way I process. So like there has to be an understanding of both sides. Um, the corporatization of is Jedi a real thing? Is that like something people? Yeah. It's a real thing. Okay. There wow. Is, yes. Wow. Yes. Um, <laughs> fabulous. Yes. So I'm going to call it that from now. I'm never going to use another term ever. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous. Um, so the corporatization of the Jedi <clears throat> movement or whatever. I think a lot about how people move into ideas and spaces and not just like where they need to be, but how they get there. Like what's the door to get you into that place? And are you going to grab the sides of the door and make sure that you don't go in depending on either what you see on the other side or how someone showed you the door or like where the door was located or what color it is, or like, we have so many hangups and we use so many things as excuses. you just not that like, putting as much cognitive ease on a concept, like how much is too much? How much is like pandering? How much is 
like focusing somebody's comfort in a way that needs to not happen anymore. Like, but Mm -hmm. what has to happen to get somebody in that door? So the corporatization of the Jedi, (laughs) can't say it with a straight face yet. I'll get there. Um, (laughs) Of the Jedi movement, it's very interesting how like we feel like that has to have not we like not the people on this call but like yeah. how america feels like that that is the only way to do this like and the reason it's like part of the reason it's the only way to do this is because part of your focus is getting people who are not going to go in that door to like at least step up to the door and like i know we made you and we're going to feed you subway while we do this to hopefully make it better um Michigan has implemented an implicit bias um, requirement for all healthcare people, and that includes massage therapists in Michigan. And the amount of whining, oh my God. Like, it's like, it's two hours, I think, a year. And like, it has to be in person, which I'm, bless whoever made that requirement. Um, Two hours, there's all kinds of topics you can cover. There's all kinds of things you can do. There's, There's so many things popping up now because it's a requirement and like, the complaining is incredible um and not just the complaining but like the people who mean well and are still complaining because they're like well i don't need it because i'm i'm so fabulous and i already understand all of this that's been a thing so like how much of those checkboxes do we need in order to just like get people there in the first place and then Mm -hmm. how detrimental is it to have those checkboxes because then people are like well i did it i'm good i'm out peace y'all thanks for the subway i'm done and I also think a lot about the professionalization of massage therapy and what we have to offer healthcare and what healthcare is going to take from us when we professionalize, because I, I really think we need to for lots and lots of reasons, but it has consequences. And part of those consequences are massage therapy is based in time, right? It's not based in checkboxes, not really. Um, at least most of it's not, and you can make an argument, but it's not based in checks boxes. It's based in the amount of time you spend with people. It's based in the intimacy of the actual interaction. It's based in a lot of things that healthcare has completely forgotten about, like visiting people's homes. Um, and that's, I think, what we have to offer them. But in order for us to offer healthcare things, they're going to take things away from us. And this like dichotomy of time and what you can take away and it can still be massage and what you can't take away, like what can you not separate? Mm-hmm. And then on a whole nother level, my brain is like, how much can you separate and still get what you need? So my intellectualism turns into this place of what things are connected in my head that are not actually connected. Like what have I linked together in my head that needs to be separated? So I, I'm really big into history. Like Bridget, you were saying, like how how why do I think these things? Like, how did it get here? I didn't make a conscious decision to think them, but I totally do. And why do I? Because it didn't come from my brain. It came from like something else 500 years ago, 200 years, 20 years ago. Like something happened. And now I have these sets of ideas. So knowing who came up with those, real helpful. But also like what things do I think that are linked in my head that do not need to be linked anymore? And that's a super intellectual exercise for me. And it's very helpful for my understanding of lots and lots of things. Um, and that helps with the shame part for sure. Um, like recognizing that it wasn't me, but it does affect me and it is in me. Um, 
so like with the corporatization of things, like what is inextricably linked? What can be separated and how do you separate that? So people go in and you're like, I have checkboxes for you so that you can feel better about the checkboxes. But really what we're doing here today is something different from that. You talked about holding space for people and like sitting in silence and um, how silence can be judgmental or not. Um, and that modeling silence and modeling a different way to be, maybe that's maybe that's the really most important thing after that checkbox period where you're like, we talked about language and we talked about, because like some people really don't know about the language thing. Um, so we talked about that and you can feel good about that and you can put on a note card and you can take it home. But really the important part of this meeting that I didn't tell you about, and that's not in the description because you wouldn't have entered the door <laughs> is me modeling for you a different way to exist in this, like that it is a different space and a different place to be. Um, I mean, I, can I pause you for one? Yeah, please. Arga, Arga, I'm so curious about what, I don't know if, what, I mean, maybe we've talked about this, but like, I'm just pausing to think about like, is the right entryway ever something that's mandated when it comes to that? Like, you know, like people who have to come to have the conversation in order to like not getting get some doc on their HR, some like, you know, check mark on their HR file, like it's a very different group of people that are basically required to be there versus people who come based on their own generated interest, desire. It's very different work. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think about, you know, um, the decentering whiteness class workshop, Cal, that you're um, going to be doing with Anne. Um, and I just think about like one person has signed up voluntarily. Mm. Right. Yep. Correct. And, mm. and I'm not a fan of a fan of mandating things. Right. Like, because I think that there are, I think that there are people who I, I think about it along this continuum of pre-contemplative, right? Like when we think about like from, I borrowed this from like the su substance abuse world um, of this pre-contemplation of Definitely. like, I know that there's something wrong, but I'm not quite sure what it is. Like mm -hmm. those people are going to get benefit from it. Right. Yep. The people who are who are already contemplative already know like, oh, yeah, this is something it's I need to continue to do. Yep. It's a problem. I, and this is something I need to do. They're going to get something from it. But the people who aren't even aware that there's anything to be contemplative, mm -hmm. I'm like, they're not going to get it. They're not going to get anything because because I mean, again, I don't know why we've said his name and I'm about to say it again so many times, like three times now on this podcast. Ron For SEO purposes. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, maybe somebody looking for him will find this and their life will be changed and that'll be better. That's right. That's right. Well, I, yeah. And and that's how, and that's honestly how I feel. Like if one person who's mandated, right? Again, I don't like to mandate things, but if it's going to be mandated and if one person who was mandated to be there moves from this pre-contemplative place along yeah. the continuum, yeah. it was successful. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that that is one of the struggles definitely as a facilitator is like you, you try to not have expectations and sort of an agenda of like where people will end up right at the end right. of your two hours or eight weeks or however long it is. And like, 
there are there have been so many times where I'm like, wow, that person did not show up to any of this. And then you see that person six months or a year later and they're like, oh, my God, that class changed my life. And you're like, it did. Okay. I mean, who am I to say how it changed your life or if it changed your life enough or whatever? Like it's about just creating the destabilization that facilitates change. Right. And so if you can like sort of keep the momentum going of that, like, hmm, this isn't quite right, (laughs) then that's valuable. Right. Right, because even getting to that pre-contemplative state, right? Yes. Like, of like, now I don't feel comfortable. I'm unsettled. Yeah. I'm unsettled. Something's not <laughs> right. Maybe I need to explore this more. And some people will explore it more. And some people will be like, oh, hell no. And they'll just like shut everything down. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're so excited to have you two actually kick off our Ending Inequities and End-of-Life Care Symposium with an anti-oppression framework in end-of-life care. Just to even say that phrase is so exciting in a like sort of, you know, like imaginary way. Like what if we could envision an anti-oppression framework in end-of-life care? And um, if there's any place in care that needs it, it's certainly that place. Uh, so, and that you'll bring humor and humanity and um, call-ins and call-outs and it'll be amazing. I'm looking forward to being in the audience. So excited to see you again. Yeah, very excited. And thank you so much for having us today. This was really, this was, this is probably the best hour plus of my day, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Ditto. Thank you both for this and for, for just being. You too. Thank you. Thank you. And Corey, Jedi. (laughs) (laughs) If you enjoy interdisciplinary, you should check out Healwell's new show, The Rub, a podcast about massage therapy. You can click the link in the show notes or find The Rub wherever you listen to podcasts. See you there.